Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am your host, Elaine miller Karras, And I have to start out by saying it has been a difficult week in many parts of the world. Many of us are heartbroken by the extent of the violence with many innocent lives lost through gun violence and the horror of the recent um, murder in Tennessee of Tyree Nichols. It is truly with gratitude that I introduce you to my guest this week, Javene Skiba. She will share her personal perspectives and from her role as the Assistant Director for Equity, Education and Engagement for New Hanover County uh, Resiliency Task Force in Wilmington, North Carolina. Javene um, serves the community through the idea of functional compassion, and she's going to talk to a little, a little bit about what that means. I understand it is the act of engaging in public and personal practices that spur change on a systemic level out of the direct concern for the suffering of others. And I certainly could not think of a better time to have her today with everything that's been happening in the United States. This kind of compassion grows and learns and changes and has the potential to be powerful and impactful. It requires hope for healing and invites us to build our own personal resilience while identifying and addressing the need to change systems that can cause suffering. In her work, Javene strives to help her community make meaningful connections to realize the task force vision. And I'm going to have her share with us what that vision is. And so as we get started today, welcome, Javene. I'm so excited to have you be our guest today. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm truly honored to be here um, just to talk about our work and... um, you know, how we see um, that vision that you mentioned of the task force as being a, a more resilient and compassionate community, um, not just here, but um, across the globe. So thanks again for having me. Well, and I think that, you know, as you say that, and I appreciate you um, you saying that in terms of what the vision is, because sometimes it's hard not to breed you know, anger and hatred when we see everything that's going on in the world. And I don't think there's anything wrong with righteous anger when there's something that's been done that's been unjust. But when anger leads to violence and harm um, to human beings um, and death, then we really need to think as a society how to do things differently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what is on your mind today about everything that's been happening in the world you know, I, I know you're from the South and Tyree Nichols it was, is from, was from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that you'd like to share as we get started about that? Well, you know, Elaine, um, that is, a, is just a tragedy. Um, and the idea of us progressing to a point where our history um, is just erased and gone and has no effect on us anymore. Um, it's just, it's not accurate. 
right? Um, there's not anything that we as a species can do that is not in some way informed um, by the history that we stand on. Um, and when we talk about suffering um, and changing systems, um, I think a way forward, a way toward healing and not a way toward creating more division and more anger is really understanding that we do have the tools. Um, we have um, the inherent resilience to be able to um, build ways forward. Um, we can build bridges, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we excuse behavior that causes suffering, um, but it also means that we are not going after gotcha moments, right? Um, we're trying to come into spaces to um, open eyes to the ways systems abuse us um, and how we can be complicit or complacent, um, in those um, and within systems. So, um, you know, being from the South um, and being from Wilmington, North Carolina specifically, um, I think it can be very easy to let that air we breathe or that water we swim in um, stay toxic. But when we know that there is suffering and hurt, um, we have to do something about it. And we do that, you know, if we call it righteous indignation, um, the foundation of that is just wanting to end suffering and acting in love and wanting healing, wanting to move towards that most importantly. Well, and I guess as I'm hearing you speak too, and when you say history, I mean, I think the history is important to remember and to know about. Mm -hmm. And you know, having spoken to many um, people in the South, and hearing more about the accurate history, let's say, of the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. or what happened to um, African Americans, uh, to our Black citizens in the South, I think we have to know that and remember that in order to be more present to what has impacted people to create this moment in time. Uh, can Absolutely. you or maybe expound upon that? What is your thinking about that? Because here we are on the eve of Black History Month. Right. And, um, you know, what is what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, Elaine, this is um, something that um, I try to bring a lens to um, in my work. Um, the task force really does exist to build a more compassionate and resilient community. Um, and we try to do that work through a racial equity lens. Um, for me personally, um, Black history is American history. Um, it really does inform, um, in a deep sense, uh, the fabric of our community. It is a, a vital thread um, that keeps us all together, um, but it's also one that is largely ignored, um, one that some folks would just want to erase <laughs> um, because it's challenging, you know, and it's difficult. Um, specifically in uh, Wilmington, we are the site of the first um, and only coup d'etat in the United States where a duly elected, duly elected government was um, essentially overthrown 
um, because of Black people and white people working together in a fusionist party in the South um, that was not welcomed to um, welcomed by the um, power structure at that time, um, which was um, pushed forward by white supremacy. Um, and so thinking about our history here in Wilmington and um, how it has affected us even to this day, um, being able to use that information to inform what trauma-informed looks like for our area, to be able to identify root causes of suffering and disparities, um, it's a, it's it's we have that's a responsibility that we have. It's not something that we can ignore and expect better outcomes on the back end. Um, it's part of the work. Well, Understanding think, that history is part of the work. This is really important, and I'm, I want to emphasize what you're saying because I have heard some critics saying, "Oh, we shouldn't talk about that. We're just going to make young people feel badly about what happened in the past. Just forget it." But if we don't, if we don't know what has happened, then those remnants of the past creep into the present, mm-hmm. and if we can't speak about them, they tend to be like a cancer that grows. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And if I am um, doing the work of helping people come together um, to find solutions to um, what we can call um, those local ACEs, when we think of adverse childhood experiences, I use this often as a touch point um, here in North Carolina, the Partnership for Children. Um, develop the ACEs tree to an even broader sense to include atrocious cultural experiences. And in that um, image of the of an ACEs tree, those atrocious cultural experiences are really the groundwater that feed um, the dysfunction and the abuse and the community adverse community environments. Um, that perpetuate those in-home aces, I like to call them, you know. I get it. So so when you think about it in that way and, you know, really having to put a light on that, so how putting a light on that and what you're doing with the task force today, mm -hmm. you know, knowing a little bit about what you all have been doing out there, it's pretty remarkable of how you brought so many sectors of society together to create, you know, this resiliency task force. So can you tell us a little bit more about it? And also, I'm really curious about how did you become involved? Why did you decide to make this part of what you are, I would say, can I say passionate about? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I say that about you. Yes. Yes. Um, And so, you know, that's the beauty of the task force. So many people from different sectors of our community coming together um, to find solutions. Um, the task force was formed because um, a group of people who noticed the disparities in third grade reading outcomes um, wanted to do something about it and had seen the film Resilience, right? So it had given them words and motivation um, to do something. So, um, they found funding. They had um, Mevin Boyd, who has moved on um, to um, Smart Start here in North Carolina. Um, plan 
how we were going to do this, how we were going to bring folks together um, to start this task force and address um, adversity and how we can prevent trauma and um, not re-traumatize people um, as they move about our community, um, accessing services um, from various sectors. So um, part of the work that was done um, before I came on, on board um, was really around getting folks um, their expertise and building a plan of how we were going to educate and inform our community and how we were going to listen and be informed by the needs of the community. Um, when I came into the um, sphere of the task force, it was because um, we wanted to find folks who were trained, who could train um, in resilience focused models. And it happened to be the community resiliency model. You guys had come in um, right after Florence. Um, and we were really poised um, after the experience of that storm um, to really dig deeply into how we can build a more resilient community. Um, different systems wanted to be able to address resilience and burnout in, in, in the people that, they, that were working in that sector, first responders, um, those in justice and healthcare, and um, in education. And me being trained in the resiliency, community resiliency model was really um, my step into the task force and becoming a part of, of this work of, of building a resilient community. So um, I think. Was there anything particular about your life that, that propelled you to want to be involved in this? You know, many people oh, yes. have things in their life that propel them in all different directions, but mm -hmm. I'm just curious about what was yours? Um, I think, you know, combined with being trained um, in the community resiliency model, it was a realization of how stress feels in your body and how it shows up um, in who you are in your community. Um, I actually had been working in special education um, when I became trained in the community resiliency model. And um, some of the intuitive ways that my students were regulating their nervous system went right back to that kind of bottom-up um, sensory um, nervous system resetting that I had learned in the community resiliency model. I found it for myself to be really impactful. I'm a mother. I had been a stay-at-home mom for 10 years. Um, one of my children happens to have a physical disability. And so, in me mothering her and um, teaching and caring for students um, of different disabilities, um, physical, intellectual, um, it really helped me um, understand the importance of building resilience, um, of understanding how we respond to stress and not just thinking of um, trauma or adversity as these big things that were far away because I had a healthy family, a happy family, 
but that stress still showed up for me and I could see it showing up for other people too. So how was I um, going to help people understand that it wasn't their weakness or um, them falling short, but just needing to learn skills and know that um, they had the capacity to do so. And so also, you know, when we talk about these kinds of things that happen to people, I mean, there can be things that happen to them emotionally. You know, they can say, I emotionally feel this way. Mm -hmm. I think about myself this way or my community because of this. But I think, you know, one of the things I've seen that when we bring in the biology of the human nervous system, we say, you know, you can learn some skills that may help you. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You don't have to tell me what you feel if you don't want to. (laughs) For some people, that's a huge relief because they don't want to be like therapized. Right. I'm a therapist. I think therapy is important, but that doesn't mean it's important to everybody, but they just want to feel better. Do you think that was the the approach of the biology and and kind of the nervous system regulation was was a, a portal into many people that otherwise wouldn't have gotten some assistance? Absolutely. It's an empowering way to understand yourself. Um, I know for me personally, the more I learn about neuroscience, the more I learn about um, body-based approaches um, to resetting my nervous system, um, the more sane I feel. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> no, it does. It makes you know what I mean? Yes. Um, but I think, I think um, to your point about therapy is we love to um, draw this line between I'm okay or I need therapy and forget just like in our physical health, we go to well visits, you know, we eat well, we exercise, we do all of these things to, to feel our best and to be healthy that don't necessarily um, take us to the doctor's office, right? But we know that that's an important part of our health. And I feel like it's the same when we talk about building resilience and understanding our, our physical or physiological response to stress is we're doing all that we can to, to be healthy. And when we need to go to that therapist, we have some tools to take with us when we go, but we're taking care of ourselves in between as well. So the, these are skills that can be integrated into the activities of, of daily living. Daily For those life. of you that don't know about the community resiliency model, um, our sponsor of the show is the Trauma Resource Institute. Um, they're one of the, the major people that bring the community resiliency model to the world. So you can go to traumaresourceinstitute.com to learn more about it. Um, but the other thing is we have a free app called iChill that you can go to and you can listen and learn the skills and know a little bit about the model of what um, Jemene is talking to us about how it helps how it helped her, how I hope it helped your daughter. <laughs> and it, yes, it helps. It helps all. <laughs> it helps everybody. I, I can say that in my own family, it helps everyone as well. But I think that if we can learn simple wellness skills, and you know, the community resiliency model is just one. There's a whole bucket of other skills from yes. other ways that we um, do something that's healthy for ourselves. Like you mentioned, nutrition and exercise, or some people do Tai Chi or they do yoga they right. pray, they do exactly. mindfulness exercises. There's so many different ways that we can cultivate our well-being. But oftentimes there needs to be an intentionality. And I think if we have different things we can lean into, it just expands that wellspring of, of well-being. And Absolutely. certainly when you talk about the things that have happened 
in North Carolina. I know, you know, because you guys have had a lot of stuff happen to you down there with yeah. these darn hurricanes too, not to say yes. the other thing that about are about the disparities and let's say in educational opportunities or or in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit more about what you do with the, the task force? Because you're involved with the equity, diversity, inclusion, what lens that you bring in that helps to create a healthier community? So, um, you know, as we mentioned before, Wilmington is unique um, because of um, our history. And uh, one of the things that we've done, um, some of the work that we've tried to do is, um, and I mentioned this before, is have that racial equity lens um, on the work that we do. Um, But we also work to make meaningful connections in the community. Last year, um, we were able to get some funding to um, roll out a series. Um, We called it our Racial Equity and Trauma Training Series. And um, in the series, we had um, some phenomenal trainers um, join us, and um, we convened a group of really committed community members, community leaders, to take part in this training because we knew Um, If we gave people a trauma-informed, racial equity-centered framework to see our community a little clearer, they'd be able to go back and inform the work that they were doing in their organizations or in the sectors that they were serving serving in. So, in this um, series... Um, again, it was a we used trauma-informed, racial equity-centered frameworks. Um, so we taught racial equity fundamentals um, as one component. Um, we had a racial justice pra- a restorative justice practice component to it, and we also um, are ending the series with a race and trauma component. Um, all of this um, really is to build a community of folks who really understand that groundwater that I mentioned before, those atro- atrocious cultural events, um, so that they can see more clearly how we can build solutions um, for disparities and suffering in our community and in regard to race. Because again, that's one of those um, things that are, it's kind of in the water we're swimming in, um, definitely in the South, but all over the country. Um, And if we don't understand um, the root cause of some of the hurt that we see, um, then we're not going to be able to find solutions that really reach around folks. Um, And also, um, we fall into that um, pitfall if we don't use equity and education appropriately of creating this deficit mindset where um, it's not really the system that's the issue, it's the person. And we know that that's not the case. Um, So my work is really about um, building those meaningful connections within the community, um, creating um, safe and brave spaces for people to be able to learn and process. And that can be really hard in our, in our current climate. You know, if somebody says the wrong thing, it can be easily misunderstood. Some people say the wrong thing and they don't care if they're misunderstood. They meant what they said. Yeah. Um, but in the spaces that um, we try to create, 
um, we want people to be able to process and not feel um, that they're going to get canceled if they if they process, um, because that shuts down. If we're talking about our biological response, it shuts down our ability to connect if we feel fear. It shuts down our ability to think differently um, and to create new knowledge if we are operating in fear. Now, have you integrated the community resiliency model within like your series? Oh, yes. That is part of the series, too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I'm interested, too. When you talk Absolutely. about the theories that you did, this would be wonderful to replicate all over the country. Um, um, you are just a you are like a little wellspring of, of great, amazing ideas, Wilmington, North Carolina. I've said it before, but so how do you think that? Do you think that helps, and how does it help? Oh, absolutely. To regulate kind of your nervous system when you get into those difficult spaces of conversation, for example. Absolutely. Um, you know, in those spaces. Uh, We've been very intentional um, about, you know, I mentioned um, with you earlier, we open our meetings with a skill. You know, we are trying to model setting that, um, set, setting that example um, at an organizational level. Um, and so we want to intentionally integrate um, community resiliency model skills into how we are engaging in um, this series on racial equity and trauma because it is activating. There is not one way that you can approach a conversation on race in this country without there being some sort of activation of the body. And when we are activated, we are not thinking as clearly as we can um, and we're not able to really connect. And that connection is what produces really deep um, thought um, and the ability uh, to get to that place of empathy because empathy happens um, in the parts of our brain that require us to be our most present self, not in our um, reactive um, self um, because we are activated by fear. So how do we do that? Um, And that's really by learning the signs of stress in our body Um, noticing when the conversation gets uncomfortable, using a skill to be able to stay present and engaged and connected with people. That's the most important thing is that we want to make those meaningful connections. If you integrate, for example, we call them resiliency pauses or well-being. Absolutely. If you Mm -hmm. see that, oh my goodness, this is going south. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you say that in the south going south. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, that may be, be an inappropriate thing for me to say, <laughs> Jay, and I'm going to have to talk to you about that. But anyway, when things are not going well, yes. um, you think maybe we can just pause for a second and maybe just remember our resource or remember something that helps us be more present with ourselves mm-hmm. in this moment. And do you actually do those kinds of things? To yes, we actually say, and even just, you know, Elaine, acknowledging that it's hard, acknowledging, and I, and I try to model this, we try to model this, um, you know, my throat is tight. My cheeks are warm. My chest is heavy right now. Um, and stating that in the conversation um, helps people identify it in themselves, you know. Um, and then we can it's ask the question, why it's is not it a hard? Judgment. It's not a judgment. It's not. It, it's, it's not it's evaluative. A, it's a physiological reaction right. that if you're paying attention to that, you know, it can continue to go into that high zone state. 
Mm-hmm. Or just actually get so disconnected, just that you just disconnect. Just exactly. But what a wonderful way to do that in yes. terms of it not being about a judgment. Because you're not even seeing an emotion like, I'm angry. I am feeling the heat in my body right now and I need to just pause. Mm-hmm. That's a little different, isn't it? It is. It is. Wow. Well, you know, we're going to take a little bit a break. I'm just enjoying this conversation more. And I really want our audience our worldwide audience to hear about what you've done with this task force, because, you know, we're talking about the South, but, you know, this, as you said, these kinds of issues are all over the world. And, you know, having been to India, there's a caste system. In Northern Ireland, there's the Protestants and the Catholics. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. ways that we as people have learned to separate each other and to cause harm to one another. So these kinds of conversations are, I think, are essential for the well-being of humankind, for humanity. Absolutely. So, um, listeners, we will be back in just a moment, and we were gonna, we're going to continue this wonderful call, co- conversation with my guest, Jevane Skiba, of the New Hanover County Resiliency Task Force. So we'll be back in a moment, and we will continue this lovely conversation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Jevene Skiba from the New Hanover County Resiliency Task Force. Uh, we are learning about her work um, there and the the amazing um, 
things the task force is doing to bring their whole community in. And I, I guess I want to say a little bit, we were talking um, at the break um, about that your task force is not skirting the issues of what happened in North Carolina when you miss, when you mentioned the coup, de, coup d'etat, which what, what year did that happen? Um, that was 1898. 1898. So thinking about that so long ago, thinking, oh, that would be d- done and over with. But the fact of the matter, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so the kinds of things that have been done and the elements of bringing this out forward in the series that you were you mentioned before the break, mm-hmm. um, it's still going to cause people to be very upset. And so we were talking about these resiliency pauses. And, you know, let's talk a little bit more about that. So mm-hmm. when people settle after becoming upset and you're tracking your nervous system and saying, oh, my, my ears are hot or I'm feeling, you know, yes. a distress in my belly, whatever way you say that. And then mm-hmm. you, what happens when people settle when they're feeling upset or activated, like we sometimes say, what happens when they come back? Are they more able to talk about the issue that was making them all kind of? I think it's a connection. Own? Yes. And I teach all the time. Um, and I lead with connection is really our first survival response. And when we get activated, um, in these conversations, it's because there's we there's a perceived threat, whether we intellectually um, consider that or not. Um, and so, um, with our resiliency pauses, asking, um, you know, what or who brings you strength? What or who um, helps you get through hard times? A lot of the time, the things that are uttered or shared in that space are the things that build connection. Um, we go back to wanting to be there for each other and being with each other um, because of the things that, that we say. Um, and I tell people all the time, it's like we get this trifecta of uh, family, faith, and fur babies. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That is so true. And, you know, that is, that except in certain parts, there are certain parts of the, the world where they don't have animals as pets. Yes, um, yes. But, even but verb, you are so right. It's so trifecta. Mm-hmm. Yes, safe and fur babies. Yep. Yep. Cats, <laughs> dogs, rats. God knows what it is. Oh my goodness. Yes. I'm going to have to borrow that statement from you. <laughs> sure, but I'm, but, but, but that's really, how we're alike, right? When you say, "Oh, you love your family like I love my family." Exactly. You, know, you exactly. like your granddaughter or your child or whatever it might be. You're not old enough to have a granddaughter yet, but in any <laughs> event, yes. I mean, it just is. It's those things that that it brings me to get bring us together with a smile. And right. I do this work, as you know, all over the world. And when I ask those questions, it is the same answer, whether someone lives in Pakistan, India, mm-hmm. North Carolina, or California, it's just, it really is heartwarming, isn't it? Yes, it really is. It really is. And even in that language, Elaine, I think about, um, you know, that felt sense of we're together in this space. Um it doesn't take away from the gravity of the conversations or the subject matter that we're trying to learn, but it gives more weight to our connection. It gives more weight to the relationship that we're building so that um, the subject um, doesn't come in the way of that. Now, it's not perfect um, by any means, but it makes it... um, 
a healing experience, I think, for the people who are taking part in this series. Back that a little bit because you know, I've often thought about this, but it's it's also had troubled responses because mm-hmm. we may look different. We may be different ethnicities, maybe different religions, different gender identifications, mm-hmm. all the different things that mm-hmm. may you know, that we I think need to appreciate and un- yes. try to understand. But then we do all have a nervous system mm-hmm. that operates the same way. Um, whether we live in all those different countries, whatever our th- ethnicity or religion may be, when we feel distress, the same physiological reactions happen. Yes. We feel well-being. And I often say this when I've been in different parts of the world and I've asked the question of faith, mm-hmm. that people who are Christian may say, I have Jesus right here in my heart. And when they say that, they take a deeper breath. Uh-huh. When I you know, was in China after the Szechuan earthquake, I said, what's helping you? The teachings of Buddha. Mm-hmm. Again, touching the hand of the heart. A yes. When I was in Nepal, I was working with a lot of people that were Hindus. What's helping you? Oh, and they might have mentioned a, a, a particular God in mm-hmm. their faith. And again, that deep, deep breath. But yes. it's, it's amazing. There might be different vehicles of what gets us to that physiological response, but it is it is the same when we're touched by things and bring coming back to your trifecta yeah. <laughs> of family faith and fur babies. We may have different fur babies and different yes. um, phase, but that reaction is so interesting. It is. Of, of how it comes to us. And then you said something. We may know something intellectually, but something different happens when we work with the body. And exactly. that felt sense that you mentioned. Yes. And so I want our audience to know that what I've seen, which has been so extraordinary, really, is that when people sense their well-being, they can you know, differentiate the, the distress and then they can cultivate the well-being. Mm-hmm. That something happens to our thoughts. Right. And you mentioned it. I, I'm gonna I want to ask you more about this. Mm-hmm. That we tend to look at someone like, oh, I think that's my I think they're like me. Mm-hmm. I didn't think she was like me, but maybe she's more like me than I thought. Could you, you know, expand a little bit about what you've seen happen in your in the series that you did? Did you see that emerge? Um, yes. Um, when um, and like I said, we partnered with um, great trainers with expertise in um, restorative justice practices um, and uh, racial trauma. Um, and equity. And um, they, too, are devoted to creating those, those, those spaces of connection where people, um, to quote um, one of the partners, um, can speak in rough draft. So, um, you know, building that space for folks, um, one of the most important things, obviously, but the conversations that happen because we are what I, I'm sure a lot of people call front of mind, um, the, the level of being inquisitive and wanting to know more um, in our breakout rooms, um, in feedback afterwards, um, people wanted to dialogue more. That doesn't happen when you're activated. You don't want to connect with people more. You want to fight or run away. Or become um, more siloed. Or become more siloed. Exactly. Um, And so for me in hearing um, 
how engaged breakout rooms were. And breakout rooms had different people from different sectors of the um, community um, coming together, people that didn't necessarily know each other before in breakout rooms um, responding to me later with, we had really fruitful um, conversation or I was surprised by this perspective. And that only happens when we're front of brain. Yeah, you know? That means that we have our prefrontal cortex is fully engaged when we're exactly. in a well-being. I want to make sure people understand. Yes, that. sorry. <laughs> but I have to ask you this question is that, oh, Shivani, I if I was about to launch the series, I would have been a little nervous, honestly, yes. thinking, I hope this is a good idea. I think it's a good idea. But what if it blows up? Were you a little nervous that it wasn't going to kind of happen? Or did you did you have confidence that it was going to be okay? Um. Honestly, I had confidence that it was going to be okay. Um, and I shot for the stars because, um, you know, part of what the reason we do what we do as a task force is for, we want to build, help folks build personal resilience, but ultimately we want systems change um, so that we don't continue to re-traumatize vulnerable, um, our vulnerable community members, um, our neighbors. Um, and so I shot for the stars and I was like, I want all of our elected officials to come, um, conferred with our equity and inclusion subcommittee and said, you know, you all let's get folks to the table who are either the gatekeepers, the decision makers. And, um, you know, that part was where I paused because I was like, are they going to come? Um, and we got having a big party and then no one's going to come. Right. Right. But as far as the purpose behind it, um, for me, as um, a Black woman, as a Black mother, um, as a person in this community who loves, I love where I live, um, and seeing Wilmington um, from the perspective that I feel I see it from, um, I knew it was vital for us to be able to offer something like this. Um, so I was not at all um, nervous to or afraid to, but I did want the people to show up um, and, and folks showed up. The kind of well, people that came that. are maybe, infested and, and here for it. Thinking about, okay, I want to do this. You know, maybe how do I do this? And we already have given them, we'll give some information out to them at the end of the show mm-hmm. about how they can contact you. But um, how did you galvanize the community? I mean, there's one thing, I mean, I can tell you're a passionate lady and you had <laughs> an idea and you want you you were preparing. It's like kind of how you're preparing the party, but you don't know if anybody's going to come or not. Mm-hmm. So how did you galvanize? What did you do? Um, I, in spaces that I move in, um, I want people to know that I value their expertise and, um, what they bring to the table. Um, I'm not a respecter of persons, if you will, and in terms of, um, you know, title, but I just want um, folks to come who are committed to the work. Um, So I think what galvanized um, folks in wanting to come is that they, they, they feel that authenticity um, that, everybody brings to the task force. It's not just me. It's our director, Tina um, Pearson, who's been working with us for um, 
a year and a half almost now. Um, it's our steering committee who's committed to sharing things and ideas that we have um, to propel our, our work. Um, it's the actual task force members at large who um, listen and bring their ideas and their connections um, to the table. Um, that motivates me to help plan and drive the work, but um, the effort is really, um, or the, what galvanizes us is knowing that there's going to be that change um, and on some level um, at the end. We know that, you know, we've talked about drops in the bucket. Those drops yeah. in the bucket are going to, to ripple out into the community um, and help with our, our collective healing. Well, it sounds like it did when people contacted and said, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe that we were talking like we were talking and we were having really meaningful conversations. So, so and wanting more conversation, wanting which more, <laughs> so that means that means you've just made your job bigger. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's not over yet. That's right. Well, not you know, over. You know, as you as you know, um, Javen, as you're talking, um, I you're the compassion and empathy of who you are as a person just exudes out of you. So I imagine that either your relationship building skills, and I know some of the folks out there in Wilmington, like Mebin and and Bo and others, Kelly. Um, that I know that there's a lot of folks like you that are out there. Absolutely. But I, but I can sense your compassion. And one of the terms that you wanted to talk about today was is called functional compassion. Mm-hmm. And, and can you give us a little bit more insight about, you know, what does that mean to operationalize this functional compassion, compassion in your community? And why has it become an important term for you? Oh, my. Um I think compassion is, um, you know, to suffer, to suffer with. Um, And we hear it so often. We hear kindness and compassion so often to the point where um, I feel like they become buzzwords um, that we can hold up in front of ourselves and say, no, I'm compassionate. I've been kind. Um, I've tied a shoe. I've given a meal. Um, I've given a care kit. That's compassionate. Yes, um, that is kindness. Um, but with functional compassion, there is a level of of reflection, personal reflection, and introspection. Where where do I need to learn more skills? Where do I need to be more vulnerable so that I can see somebody else's suffering more clearly? Um, where do I need to build a little bit of bravery um, to advocate for somebody else? Um, and, you know, that idea of um, engaging in public and personal practices that spur change for me is how I see the work that I do. Um, I think we can be kind to each other all day, but if we're not using our personal development of kindness to propel some sort of systemic change, um, then we're not having the impact that we could possibly have. And those people that you mentioned, Bo and Kelly and Mevin um, and Carrie and so many others um, who are partners in this work, I think inherently know that too. And people who come into our space of the task force know that to be true too. Um, so it's one of those things where 
um, we're taking it out of that buzzword frame and actually um, letting it be the the ground, the feet on the ground, the boots on the ground. Um, what we're actually doing to to propel um, the effects, the impacts of compassion to a different level. Um, and I think our task force does, does it so beautifully. You know, as you're talking about it as well, I think that reflection on compassion, you know, it is important. You know, I can, you know, um, humbly admit that it's easier for me to be compassionate towards certain people than there mm. are others. And I can remember, you know, uh, certain things happening, let's say, in the political spectrum and going, how can I be compassionate towards that person? Yeah. And then I finally, I finally resulted that the only way I could really sense my compassion was thinking about that person as maybe a 12-year-old that was having challenges. Mm-hmm. And that what if as a trauma therapist, his family would have brought him to me and I would have tried to help him so that maybe he would have had more self-reflection. But if he didn't get that opportunity, yes. how that may have started a trajectory, as you say, that mm-hmm. was filled with trauma that ends that the, the person ends up swallowing the thorns of trauma yes. and spit them out as vitriol as they live their life. And it doesn't become functional compassion. Mm-hmm. It becomes kind of functional hatred. Yes. It's the very opposite of what we want to do in the world right now. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what you're doing in Wilmington. And I just want to do also a shout out because I understand that you all got a, a big award as well, not long ago, mm-hmm. was it the National Council of Counties? Yes, our um, partners, New Hanover County, um, they um, won that award. They sure did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for kind of bringing people together, and because even when you say the people that you mentioned, um, I, they, that represents diversity. Yes. And there's a bunch of diverse folks getting together and going, okay, what can we do to improve improve our, our 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 county and you know people often ask me and i want to ask you this question people often ask me this well you know when you talk about the community resiliency model you're really talking about something that's impacting an individual how does that really work in impacting a system mm-hmm. and so how would you answer that question i'm really i mean you sounds like you're living it i mean honestly <laughs> elaine if i had not um learned um the community resiliency model and been able to see my community through the lens that that model gave me, I probably would have missed it too. It's not a, when we, I had a, I have a friend, a very wise woman who said to me, um, who said once, you cannot treat the organization if you don't treat the organism. Um, we are all a part of a system of some sort, be it in our home, when we go to work, our, our friend group, and all of our little parts inform that fabric that we build within whatever system that is. And if we don't understand our own personal resilience and go back to that self-reflection, we're not developing empathy as a skill. Um, and if we don't have that kind of empathic motivation in the things that we do, then we're not seeing how we can affect the broader picture by changing ourselves. Um, And so the community resiliency model is one of those ways 
that we can do that. We can learn more about ourselves, which might inform how we look at other people and make us more inquisitive. And then see, you know, if I feel this way um, as, a, as a mother, as a Black woman, as a mother of a child with a disability, as an advocate, um, as a community member in a large-ish town in the South, if I can't see myself um, operating and having an effect on all of those different parts of um, who I am or my um, interactions with my community, um, then I will miss how that little organism, how I treat that organism um, really is affecting all of those other parts, the, the organization. I think that's a beautiful way to describe it. And, you know, I'm going to kind of swerve back. This is not a question we prepared, but it's just coming up for me right now because of what happened to Tyree Nichols. And I, you know, that that it's it, this is law enforcement. And I know so many wonderful people in law enforcement that are really trying to make systemic change. And yet here we have another horrendous, atrocious act that's happened. How do you wrap your head around what you've just been talking about regarding Mm -hmm. compassion and, and, and that horror? Well, Elaine, I will have to wrap my head around it through um, the arms that wrapped around me. Um, I mentioned, well, my father <laughs> um, was in was a career police officer. Um, he served um, and worked up the ranks from um, a detective um, to being captain of operations division in our small town um, where I grew up. So, um, and he was instrumental in. Um, in so much in our hometown. I actually was visiting my mom recently and she has a, a curio or display, a display case with his commendations and, um, you know, his memorabilia. And I was reading each of the commendations and it all went back to relationship yeah. and um, how he was with his community. Um, things that, um, not only took care of the community at large, but were actually hallmarks of who he was as an individual, um, which probably is what propels me in my work. Um, well, not even in my thinking brain. I, thinking, am, but just, I am so glad I asked you that question. We just have a couple of minutes left. Oh, yes. And yes. I'm thinking that here you are, his daughter. Is he still yeah. with us on the planet? Is no, he, he's passed away. You know, I mean, what a wonderful testament to his life that you learned from his ability to create relationships mm-hmm. and you just said it. And it's probably why you're involved with what you're involved with right now. Yes. And he was law enforcement. Mm-hmm. That means if it happened with him, it could happen with others. Exactly. And, and it, it's a personal relationship and how you see yourself as a part of the community. So if people want to get a hold of you, can you share with us um, the websites that they could contact you? And I know you, you also are generous to give your email. Absolutely. Um, I, we can be found at nhcbouncesback.org. That's NHC as in New Hanover County, bouncesback.org. Um, you can find us also on Facebook at Resiliency Task Force NHC. Um, and I can be emailed at jvanete at cis 
capefear.org. And I'm happy to connect with anybody. We love talking about this work. <laughs> Damon, I have been so touched by your work. And I, I think I have kind of sweet tears in my eyes. Actually. Oh, and Thinking I've been touched by yours too, doing, Elaine. Right, Thank what you. you're doing and, and, and what was your dad's name? James. Oh, my husband's name's James. Good name. Good name. uh, (laughs) Good name. But, you know, really, in the memory of your dad, um, I will dedicate this show to you and what he gives to us as your living memory of him. Thank you. You are so welcome. And so I I just want to say to our audience today, I think you can obviously see what else is true in your life. Um, I think Jevenet is a living testament of that. And so when you're feeling down and out and think of, gosh, I don't know if I can keep going. There's so much chaos in the world. Maybe think about the trifecta yes. <laughs> of your friends, Bam. family, Bam. and fur babies. Fur babies. <laughs> Those things that get us through the, the hardest of times. Um, and, you know, if you feel a little sad about maybe they're not as present with you right now, maybe a call would be in order. Maybe pick up pick up some the phone that, and talk to someone you haven't touched base with in a in a in a few months or years. So until we meet again, um, this is Elaine Miller Karras signing out. And again, Javanay Skiba, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm grateful. Thank you so much. So much Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.